Section 9 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 13, The Kings of Rome and Alba. Part 1, Numa and Egeria. Egeria and Nemai, a nymph of water, and of the oak, perhaps a form of Diana. From the foregoing survey of custom and legend, we may infer that the sacred marriage of the powers both of vegetation and of water has been celebrated by many peoples for the sake of promoting the fertility of the earth, on which the life of animals and men ultimately depends, and that in such rites the part of the divine bridegroom or bride is often sustained by a man or woman. The evidence may, therefore, lend some countenance to the conjecture that in the sacred grove in Nemi, where the powers of vegetation and of water manifested themselves in the fair forms of shady woods, tumbling cascades, and glassy lake, a marriage like that of our king and queen of May was annually celebrated between the mortal king of the wood and the immortal queen of the wood, Diana. In this connection, an important figure in the grove was a mortal nymph, Megiria, who was worshipped by a pregnant woman because she, like Diana, could grant them an easy delivery. From this it seems fairly safe to conclude that, like many other springs, the water of Agaria was credited with a power of facilitating conception as well as delivery. The votive offerings found on the spot, which clearly referred to the begetting of children, may possibly have dedicated to Agaria rather than to Diana, or perhaps we should rather say that the water nymph Agaria is only another form of the great nature goddess Diana herself, the mistress of sounding rivers as well as umbrageous woods, who had her home by the lake and her mirror in its calm waters, and as Greek counterpart Artemis loved to haunt mares and springs. The identification of Egeria with Diana is confirmed by a statement of Plutarch that Egeria was one of the oak nymphs, whom the Romans believed to preside over every green oak grove. For while Diana was a goddess of the woodlands in general, she appears to have been imitatively associated with oaks in particular, especially at a sacred grove of Nemai. Perhaps then, Egeria was the fairy of a spring that flowed from the roots of a sacred oak. Such a spring is said to have gushed from the foot of the great oak at Dodona, and from its murmurous flow the priestess drew oracles. Among the Greeks, a drought of water from certain sacred springs or wells was supposed to confer prophetic powers. This would explain the more than mortal wisdom with which, according to tradition, Egeria inspired her royal husband or lover, Numa. The legend of the Nupatuls of Numa and Egeria may be a reminiscence of a sacred marriage which the kings of Rome contracted with a goddess of water and of vegetation. When we remember how very often in early society the king is held responsible for the fall of rain and the fruitfulness of the earth, it seems hardly rash to conjecture that in the legend of the nuptials of Numa and Egeria, we have a reminiscence of a sacred marriage which the old Roman kings regularly contracted with a goddess of vegetation and water for the purpose of enabling him to discharge his divine or magical functions. In such a rite, the part of the goddess might be played either by an image or a woman, and if by a woman, probably by the queen. If there is any truth in this conjecture, we may suppose that the king and queen of Rome masqueraded as god and goddess at their marriage, exactly as the king and queen of Egypt appear to have done. The legend of Numa and Egeria points to a sacred grove, rather to an 
house as a scene of the nuptial union which like the marriage of the king and queen of may or the vine god and the queen of athens may have been annually celebrated as a charm to ensure the fertility not only of the earth but of man and beast now according to some accounts the scene of the marriage was no other than the sacred grove in nimai and on quite independent grounds we have been led to suppose that in that same grove the king of the wood was wedded to diana the convergence of the two distinct lines of inquiry suggests that the legendary union of the roman king with Egeria may have been a reflection or duplicate of the union of the king of the wood with Egeria or double diana this does not imply that the roman kings ever served as kings of the wood in the arician grove but only that they may originally have been invested with a sacred character of the same general kind and may have held office on similar terms to be more explicit it is possible that they reigned not by right of birth but by virtue of their supposed divinity as representatives or embodiments of a god and that as such they mated with a goddess and had to prove their fitness from time to time to discharge the divine functions by engaging in a severe bodily struggle which may often have proved fatal to them leaving the crown to their victorious adversary our knowledge of the roman kingship is far too scanty to allow us to affirm any one of these propositions with confidence but at least there are some scattered hints or indications of a similarity in all these respects between the priests of nimai and the kings of rome or perhaps rather between the remote predecessors in the dark ages which preceded the dawn of legend part two the king as jupiter the roman king seems to have personated jupiter and what his costume in the first place then it would seem that the roman king personated no less a deity than jupiter himself for down to imperial times victorious generals celebrating a triumph and magistrates presiding at the games in their circus wore the costume of jupiter which was borrowed for the occasion from his great temple on the capitol and it has been held with a high degree of probability both by ancients and moderns that in doing so they copied the traditionary attire and insignia of the roman kings they rode a chariot drawn by four laurel-crowned horses through the city where every one else went on foot they wore purple robes embroidered or spangled with gold in the right hand they bore a branch of laurel and the left hand an ivory sceptre topped with an eagle a wreath of laurel crowned their brows their face was reddened with vermilion and over their head a slave held a heavy crown of massy gold fashioned in the likeness of oak leaves in this attire the assimilation of the man and the god comes out above all in the eagle-topped sceptre the oaken crown and the reddened face for the eagle was the bird of jove the oak was his sacred tree and the face of his image standing in his four-horse chariot on the capitol was in like manner regularly dyed red on festivals indeed so important it was deemed to keep the divine features properly rouged that one of the first duties of the censors was to contract for having this done the greeks sometimes painted red the face or the whole body of the wine-god dionysus these customs may have been a substitute for an older practice of feeding a god by smearing the face and especially the lips of his idol with the blood of a sacrificial victim many examples of such a practice might be adduced from the religion of barbarous peoples the oak crown as an emblem of jupiter and of the roman emperors as a triumphal procession always ended in the temple of jupiter on the capitol it was peculiarly appropriate that the head of the victor should be graced by a crown of oak leaves for not only was every oak consecrated to jupiter 
by the Capitoline Temple of the God was said to have been built by Romulus beside a sacred oak, venerated by shepherds, to which the king attached the spoils won by him from the enemy's general in battle. We are expressly told that the oak crown was sacred to Capitoline Jupiter. A pastor of Ovid proves that it was regarded as the God's special emblem. Writing in exile on the shores of the Black Sea, the poet sends the book which he has just composed to Rome to be published there. He personifies a volume and imagines it passing along the sacred way and up to the door of the emperor's stately palace on the Palatine Hill. Above the portal hung shining arms and a crown of oak leaves. At the sight, the poet starts, Is this, quoth I, the house of Jove? For sure to my prophetic soul the oaken crown was reason good to think so. The Senate had granted Augustus the right to have the wreath of oak always suspended over his door. And elsewhere over counts this among the more than mortal honours bestowed on the emperor. On the capital at Serta there stood a silver image of Jupiter wearing a silver crown of oak leaves and acorns. Similarly at Udona, the most famous sanctuary of the oak in Greece, the image of Zeus appears to have worn a chaplet of oak leaves, for the god is constantly thus betrayed on coins of Epirus. And just as Roman kings appear to have personated the oak god Jupiter, so Greek kings appear to have personated the oak god Zeus. The legendary Salmonio Sovelis is certainly reported to have done so. Periphas, the ancient king of Athens, is said to have been styled Zeus by his people, and have been changed into an eagle by his jealous namesake. In Homer, kings are often spoken of as nurtured by Zeus and divine. Indeed, we are told that in ancient days every Greek king was called Zeus. To the Romans, the breach between the human and the divine was not so wide as it seems to us. Thus we may fairly assume that on certain solemn occasions, Roman generals and magistrates personated the supreme god, and that in doing so they revived the practice of the early kings. To us moderns, for whom the breach which divides the human and the divine has deepened into the impassable gulf, such mimicry may appear impious, but it was otherwise with the ancients. To their thinking, gods and men were akin, for many families traced their descent from a divinity, and the deification of a man probably seemed as little extraordinary to them as the canonization of a saint seems to a modern Catholic. Roman Custom of Representing Dead Ancestors by Masked Men the Romans in particular were quite familiar with the spectacle of men masquerading as spirits, for at the funerals of great houses, all the illustrious dead of the family were personated by men specially chosen for their resemblance to the departed. These representatives wore masks fashioned and painted in the likeness of the originals. They were dressed in rich robes of office, resplendent with purple and gold, such as the dead nobles had worn in their lifetime. Like them, they rode in chariots through the city, preceded by the rods and axes, and attended by all the pomp and heraldry of high station. And when at last the funeral procession, after threading its way through the crowded streets, defiled into the forum, the maskers solemnly took their seats in ivory chairs placed for them on the platform of the rostra, in the sight of the people, recalling no doubt to the old, by their silent presence, the memories of an illustrious past, and firing the young with the ambition of a glorious future. The kings of Alba seem also to have claimed to represent Jupiter. According to a tradition which we have no reason to reject, Rome was founded by settlers from Alba Longa, a city situated on the slope of the Alban hills, overlooking the lake and the Campagna. 
Hence, the Roman kings claimed to be representatives or embodiments of Jupiter, god of the sky, of the thunder, and of the oak. It is natural to suppose that the kings of Alba, from whom the founder of Rome traced his descent, may have set up the same claim before them. The Silvi and the Julii now the Alban dynasty bore the name of Sylvie or Wood, and it can hardly be without significance that in the vision of the historic glories of Rome revealed to Aeneas in the underworld, Virgil, an antiquary as well as a poet, should represent all the line of Sylvie as crowned with oak. A chaplet of oak leaves would thus seem to have been part of the insignia of the old kings of Alba Longa, as of their successors, the kings of Rome. In both cases, it marked the monarch as the human representative of the oak god. With regard to Silvus, the first king of the Alban dynasty, we are told that he got his name because he had been born or brought up in the forest, and that when he came to man's estate, he contested the kingdom with his kinsman Julius, whose name, as soon as the ancients themselves perceived, means the little Jupiter. Julius the little Jupiter the people decided in favour of Silvius, but his rival Julius was consoled for the loss of the crown by being invested with religious authority and the office of chief pontiff, or perhaps rather of Flamen Dialis, the highest dignity after the kinship. From this Julius, or little Jupiter, the noble house of the Julii, and hence the first emperors of Rome, believed themselves to be sprung. The legend of the dispute between Silvius and Julius may preserve a reminiscence of such a partition of spiritual and temporal powers in Alba Longa, house afterwards took place in Rome, when the old regal office was divided between the consuls and the king of the sacred rites. Many more instances of such a schism will meet us later on. That the Julian house worshipped Vigilvis, the little Jupiter, according to the ancient rites of Alba Longa, is proved by the inscription on altar which they dedicate to him at their ancestral home of Bovale, a colony of Alba Longa, situated at the foot of the Alban hills. The Caesars, the most illustrious family of the Julian house, took their name from their long hair, Caesarese, which was probably, in those early days, as it was among the Franks long afterwards, a symbol of royalty. The Alban kings seem to have been expected to make thunder and rain for the good of their subjects. But in ceding the pontificate to their rivals, it would seem that the reigning dynasty of the Silvi or Woods by no means renounced their own claim to resonate the god of the oak and the thunder. For the Roman annals record that one of them, Romulus, Remulus, or Amulius Silvius by name, set up for being a god in his own person, equal or superior of Jupiter. To support his pretensions and overawe his subjects, he constructed machines whereby he mimicked the clap of thunder and the flash of lightning. Diodorus relates that in the season of fruitage, when thunder is loud and frequent, the king commands his soldiers to drown the roar of heaven's artillery by clashing their swords against their shields. But he paid the penalty for his impurity, for he perished, he and his house, struck by a thunderbolt in the midst of a dreadful storm. Swollen by the rain, the Alban lake rose in flood and drowned his palace. But still, says an ancient historian, when the water is low and the surface unruffled by a breeze, you may see the ruins of the palace at the bottom of the clear lake. Taken along with the similar story of Salmonius, king of Elis, this legend points to a real custom observed by the early kings of Greece and Italy, who, like their fellows in Africa, down to modern times, may have been expected to produce rain and thunder for the good of the crops. The priestly king Numa 
passed for an adept in the art of drawing down lightning from the sky mock thunder we know has been made by various peoples as a rain charm in modern times why should it not be made by kings in antiquity the legends of the deaths of roman kings point to a close connection between the king and the thunder god in this connection it deserves to be noted that according to the legend Salmonius, like his Alban counterpart, was killed by a thunderbolt, and that one of the Roman kings, Talus Hostilius, is reported to have met with the same end in an attempt to draw down Jupiter in the form of lightning from the sky. Aeneas himself, the legendary ancestor of both the Alban and the Roman kings, vanished from the world in a violent thunderstorm, and was afterwards worshipped as Jupiter Indiges. A mound of earth, encircled with fine trees, on the bank of the little river Numicius, was pointed out as his grave. Death and Deification of Romulus Romulus II, the first king of Rome, disappeared in like manner. It was the 7th of July, and the king was reviewing his army at the Goat's Marsh, outside the walls of the city. Suddenly the sky lowered and a tempest burst, accompanied by peals of thunder. Soon the storm had swept by, leaving the brightness and serenity of the summer day behind but Romulus was never seen again. Those who had stood by him said they saw him caught up to heaven in a whirlwind, and not long afterwards a certain Proculus Julius, a patrician of Alban birth and descent, declared an oath that Romulus had appeared to him clad in bright armour, and announced that the Romans were to worship him as god under the name of Quirinus, and to build him a temple on the spot. The temple was built, and the place was henceforth known as the Quirinal Hill. In this legend it is significant that the enunciation of the king's divinity should be put in the mouth of a member of the Julian house, a native of Alba, for we have seen reason to believe that at Alba the Julii had competed with the Silvi, from whom Romulus was descended for the kingship and with the honour of personating Jupiter, if, as seems to be philologically possible, the word Quirinus is derived from the same root as Quirinus, an oak. The name of the deified Romulus would mean no more than the oak god, that is, Jupiter. Thus the tradition would square perfectly with the other indications of custom and legend which have led us to conclude that the kings both of Rome and of Alba claim to embody in their own persons the god of the sky, of thunder, and of the oak. Certainly the stories which associated the deaths of so many of them with thunderstorms point to a close connection with the god of thunder and lightning. A king who had been wont to fulminate in his lifetime might naturally be supposed a death to be carried up in a thunderstorm to heaven, there to discharge above the clouds the same duties which he had performed on earth. Such a tale would be all the more likely to attach itself to the twin Romulus, if the early Romans shared the widespread superstition that twins have power over the weather in general and over rain and wind in particular. The tempests are caused by the spirits of the dead is a belief of the Araucanians of Chile, not storm bursts upon the Andes or the ocean, which the Andes do not ascribe to a battle between the souls of their fellow countrymen and the dead Spaniards. In the roaring of the wind, they hear the trampling of their ghostly horses. In the peal of the thunder, the roll of the drums, and the flash of lightning, the fire of the artillery. Every Latin town probably had its local Jupiter. Thus did the kings of Alba and Rome imitated Jupiter as god of the oak by wearing a crown of oak leaves. They seem also to have copied him in his character of a weather god by pretending to make thunder and lightning. 
and if they did so it is probable that like jupiter in heaven and many kings on earth they also acted as public rainmakers bringing showers from the dark sky by their enchantments whenever the parched earth cried out for the refreshing moisture at rome the sluices of heaven were opened by means of a sacred stone and the ceremony appears to have formed part of the ritual of jupiter lysius the god who elicits from the clouds the flashing lightning and the dripping rain and who is so well fitted to perform the ceremony as the king and living representative of the sky god many local jupiters in latinum the conclusion which we have reached as to the kings of rome and alba probably holds good of all the kings of ancient latinum each of them we may suppose represented or embodied the local jupiter for we can hardly doubt that of old every latin town or settlement had its own jupiter as every town and almost every church in modern italy has its own madonna and like the baal of the semites the local jupiter was commonly worshipped on high places wooded heights round which the rain clouds gather were indeed the natural sanctuaries for a god of the sky the rain and the oak capitoline jupiter and juno at rome he occupied one summit of the capitoline hill while the other summit was assigned to his wife juno whose temple with a long flight of stairs leading up to it has for ages been appropriately replaced by the church of st mary in the altar of the sky in Aracili. the hills of rome were once wooded with oaks that both heights were originally wooded seems certain for down to imperial times the saddle which joins them was known as the place between the two groves Virgil tells us that the hilltop where gilded temples glittered in his day had been covered of old by shaggy thickets, though unto woodland elves and savage men, born of the tree trunks in the heart of oak. These thickets were probably composed of oaks, for the oak crown was sacred to Capitoline Juno as well as to Jupiter. It was to a sacred oak on the Capitoline that Romulus fastened the spoils, and there is evidence that in early times oak woods clothed other of the hills on which Rome was afterwards built oak woods on the roman hills in antiquity thus the Celian hill went originally by the name of the mountain of the oak grove on account of the thicket of oak by which it was overgrown and jupiter was here worshipped in his character of the oak god one of the old gates of rome apparently between the Celian and the equisline hills was called the gate to the oak grove for a similar reason and within the walls hard by was a chapel of the oak grove dedicated to the worship of the oak nymphs these nymphs appear on coins of the Oaklean family as three women supporting on their shoulders a pole from which rise leafy branches the esquiline hill seems also to have derived its name from the its oaks after mentioning the chapel of the oak and other hollow groves which still dotted the hill in his time the antiquary varro tells us that their bounds were now much curtailed adding with a sigh that it was no wonder the sacred old trees should give way to the modern worship of mammon apparently the roman nobles of those days sold the ancient woods and their descendants sell their beautiful gardens for building land to this list of oak-clad hills on the left bank of the tiber must be added the quirinal if quirinus who had a very ancient shrine on the hill was the oak god out of the aventine was a grove of evergreen oaks which appears to have been no other than the grove of Igeria outside the porta capina the sacred vestal fire fed with oak wood the old grove of vesta which once skirted the foot of the palatine hill on the side of the forum must surely have been a grove of oaks 
For not only does an oak appear growing beside the temple of Vesta on a fine relief preserved in the gallery of the Fuzizi at Florence, but charred embers of the sacred Vestal fire have in recent years been discovered at the temple of Vesta in the Forum, and a microscopic analysis of them has proved that they consist of the pith of heart of trunks or great branches of oak. Quercus. The full significance of this discovery will appear later on. When the plebeians seceded to the Janiculum, in the third century before christ the dictator q hortensius summoned a meeting of the people and passed a law in an oak grove which perhaps grew on the hill in this neighbourhood there was a street called the street of the oak grove it is mentioned in an inscription found in its original position near the modern garibaldi bridge on the vatican hill there stood an evergreen oak which was believed to be older than rome an inscription in Etruscan letters on a bronze tablet proclaimed the sanctity of the tree. Five that oak woods existed at or near Rome in the earliest times has lately been demonstrated by the discovery in the forum itself of a prehistoric cemetery, which contains, amongst other sepultures of bones, of several young children deposited in rudely hollowed trunks of oak. With all this evidence before us, we need not wonder that Virgil should speak of the primitive inhabitants of Rome as born of the tree trunks and the heart of oak and that Roman kings should have worn crowns of oak leaves in imitation of the oak god Jupiter who dwelt in his sacred grove on the capital. The Alban kings may have imitated Letian Jupiter who dwelt on the top of the Alban mount. If the kings of Rome aped Capitoline Jove, their predecessors, the kings of Alba, probably laid themselves out to mimic the great Latian Jupiter who had his seat above the city on the summit of the Alban mountain. Latinus, the legendary ancestor of the dynasty, was said to have been changed into Latian Jupiter after vanishing from the world in the mysterious fashion characteristic of the old Latin kings. The sanctuary of the god on top of the mountain was a religious centre of the Latin League, as Arba was its political capital to Rome wrested the supremacy from its ancient rival. Apparently no temple, in our sense of the word, was ever erected to Jupiter on this his holy mountain. As god of the sky and thunder, he appropriately received the homage of his worshippers in the open air. The massive wall, of which some remains still enclose the old garden or the Passionist monastery, seems to have been part of the sacred precinct which Tarquin the Proud, the last king of Rome, marked out for the solemn annual assembly of the Latin League. The god's oldest sanctuary on this airy mountain top was a grove, and bearing in mind not merely the special consecration of the oak of jupiter but also the traditional oak crown of the alban kings and the allergy of the capitoline jupiter at rome we may suppose that the trees in the grove were oaks the woods of latinum in antiquity we know that in antiquity mount algidius an outlying group of the alban hills was covered with dark forests of oak and among the tribes who belonged to the latin league in the earliest days and were entitled to share the flesh of the white bulls sacrificed on the alban mount there was one whose members styled themselves the men of the oak doubtless on account of the woods among which they dwelt theophorastus's description of the woods of latinum but we should err if we picture to ourselves a country as covered in historical times with an unbroken forest of oaks theophrastus has left us a description of the woods of latium as they were in the fourth century before christ he says the land of the latins is all moist the plains produce laurels 
myrtles and wonderful beeches for they fell trees of such a size that a single stem suffices for the keel of a tyrrhenian ship pines and firs grow in the mountains what they call the land of Circe is a lofty headland thickly wooded with oak myrtle and luxuriant laurels the natives say that Circe dwelt there and they show the grave of elpenor from which grow myrtles such as wreaths are made of whereas the other myrtle trees are tall the prospect from the alban mountain antiquity thus a prospect from the top of the alban mount in the early days of rome must have been very different in some respects from what it is today the purple apennines indeed in their internal calm on the one hand and the shining mediterranean in its eternal unrest on the other no doubt looked then much as they look now whether bathed in sunshine or checkered by the fleeting shadows of clouds but instead of the desolate brown expanse of the fever-stricken campagna spanned by its long lines of ruined aqueducts like the broken arches of the bridge in the vision of mirza the eye must have ranged over woodlands that stretched away mile after mile on all sides to the varied hues of green or autumnal scarlet and gold melted insensibly into the blue of the distant mountains and sea thus the alban mount was to the latins what olympus was to the greeks the lofty abode of the sky-god who hurled his thunderbolts from above the clouds resemblance between the latin worship of jupiter and the drusidial worship of the oak the white steers which were here sacrificed to him in his sacred grove as in the capital of rome remind us of the white bulls which the druids have called sacrificed under the holy oak when they cut the mistletoe and the parallel would be all the closer if as we have seen reason to think the latins worshipped jupiter originally in groves of oak other resemblances between ancient gaul and latinum will meet us later on when we remember that the ancient italian and celtic peoples spoke languages which are nearly related to each other we shall not be surprised at discovering traces of community in their religion especially in what concerns the worship of the cod of the oak and the thunder for their worship as we shall see presently belongs to the oldest stratum of aryan civilization in europe sacred marriage of jupiter and juno but jupiter did not reign alone on the top of his holy mountain he had his consort with him the goddess juno who was worshipped here under the same title moneta as on the capital of rome as the oak crown was sacred to jupiter and juno on the capital so we may suppose it was the alban mount from which the capitoline worship was derived thus the oak god would have his oak goddess in the sacred oak grove so at dodona the oak god zeus was coupled with dion whose very name is only a dialectically different form of juno and so on the top of mount citheron he was periodically wedded to an oaken image of hera it is probable though it cannot be positively proved that the sacred marriage of jupiter and juno was only celebrated by all the peoples of the latin stock in the month which they named after the goddess the midsummer month of june janus and Kana. now on the first of june the roman pontiffs performed certain rites in the grove of helernus beside the tiber and on the same day and perhaps in the same place a nymph for the grove by name Kana, received offerings of lard and bean porridge she was said to be a huntress chaste and coy who gave the slip to her lovers in the depth of the wood but was caught by janus some took her to be diana herself 
if she were indeed a form of that goddess her union with janus that is dianus would be inappropriate and as she had a chapel on the caelian hill which was once covered with oak woods she may have been like egeria an oak nymph further janus a dianus and dinah as we shall see later on were originally more doubles of jupiter and juno with whom they coincide in name and to some extent in function Anson appears to be not impossible that the rites celebrated by the pontiffs on the first of june in the sacred grove of helenus was a marriage of jupiter and juno under the form of janus and dinah ancient use of white thorn or buckthorn to ward off witchcraft it would be some confirmation of this view if we could be sure that as ovid seems to imply the romans were in the habit of placing branches of white thorn or buckthorn in their windows on the first of june to keep out the witches for in some parts of europe precisely the same custom is observed for the same reason a month earlier on the marriage day of the king and queen of mary the greeks certainly believed that branches of white thorn or buckthorn fastened to a door or outside the house of power to disarm the malignant arts of sorcerers and to exclude spirits hence they hung up branches of it before the door when sacrifices were being offered to the dead lest any of the prowling ghosts should be tempted to revisit their old homes or to invade those of other people when the atheist bion lay a dying he not only caused sacrifices to be offered on his behalf to the gods whose existence he had denied but got an old hag to mumble incantations over him and to bind magical thongs about his arms and he had boughs of buckthorn and laurel attached to the lintel to keep out death however the evidence as to the rites observed by the romans on the first of june is too slight and dubious to allow us to press the parallel with may day at the sacred marriage of jupiter and juno in later times the parts of deities may have been acted by the flamindalis and the flaminica if at any time of the year the romans celebrated the sacred marriage of jupiter and juno as the greeks commonly celebrated the corresponding marriage of zeus and hera we may suppose that under the republic the ceremony was either performed or images of the divine pair erected by the flamindialis and his wife the flamenica before the flamindialis was a priest of jove indeed ancient and modern writers have regarded him with much probability as the living image of jupiter a human embodiment of the sky god in earlier times the roman king as representative of jupiter would naturally play the part of the heavenly bridegroom at the sacred marriage while his queen would figure as a heavenly bride just as in egypt the king and queen masqueraded in the character of deities and as at athens the queen annually wedded the vine god dionysus that the roman king and queen should act the parts of jupiter and juno would seem all the more natural because these deities themselves bore the title of king and queen even if the office of flamindialis existed under the kings as it appears to have done the double representation of jupiter by the king and the flamen need not have seemed extraordinary to the romans of the time the flamen and the flamenica may have been the deputies of the king and queen the same sort of duplication as we saw appears to have taken place at alba where the jewelry were allowed to represent the supreme god in the character of little jupiters while the royal dynasty of the sylvi continued to well the divine thunder and lightning and long ages afterwards history repeated itself another member of the julian house the first emperor of rome was deified in his lifetime under the title of jupiter while a flamen was appointed to do for him what the flamindalis did 
for the heavenly Jove. It is said that Numa, the typical priestly king, at first himself discharged the functions of Flamandialis, but afterwards appointed a separate priest of Jupiter with that title, in order that the kings, untrammelled by the burdensome religious observances attached to the priesthood, might be free to lead their armies to battle. The tradition may be substantially correct, for analogy shows that the functions of a priestly king are too harassing and too incongruous to be permanently united in the same hands, and that sooner or later the hold of the office seeks to rid himself of part of his burden by deputing to others according to his temper and tastes, either his civil or his religious duties. Hence we may take it as probable that the fighting kings of Rome, tired of parading as Jupiter and of observing all the elaborate ritual, all the tedious restrictions which the character of Godhead entailed on them, were glad to relegate these pious mummeries to a substitute, in whose hands they left the crozier at home, while they went forth to wield the sharp Roman sword abroad. This would explain why the traditions of the latter kings, from Tullus Hostilius onwards, exhibited so few traces of sacred or priestly functions adhering to their office. Among the ceremonies which they henceforth performed by a deputy may have been the rite of the sacred marriage. At the sacred marriage, the king and queen of Rome probably personated the god and goddess of the oak. Whether that was so or not, the legend of Numa and Egeria appears to embody a reminiscence of a time when the priestly king himself played the part of the divine bridegroom, as we have seen reason to suppose that the Roman kings personated the oak god, while Egeria is expressly said to have been an oak nymph. The story of their union in the sacred grove raises a presumption that at Rome, in the regal period, a ceremony was periodically performed, exactly analogous to that which was annually celebrated at Athens, down to the time of Aristotle. The marriage of the king of Rome to the oak goddess, like the wedding of the vine god to the queen of Athens, must have been intended to quicken the growth of vegetation by homeopathic magic. Of the two forms of the rite, we can hardly doubt that the Roman was the older, and that long before the northern invaders met with the vine on the shores of the Mediterranean, their forefathers had married the tree god to the tree goddess in the vast oak forests of central and northern Europe. In the England of our day, the forests have mostly disappeared. It is still on many a village green, and in many a country lane, a faded image of the sacred marriage lingers in the rustic pageantry of May Day. End of section 9